nobody in New York eats lunch. I, I've never right. seen anybody yeah. in, my, in our studio eat lunch. I mean, <laughs> exactly. they grab something. We all, yeah, we way. all get things and put them, put them in front of our laptops. But it's such a sensibility. Hey, you're listening to The Curbed Appeal, a podcast for people who live places. I'm Asad Zerkat. And I'm Jeremiah Budin, and we are both editors at Curbed and co-hosts of this podcast. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. Today, we have architect Daniel Liebeskin in the studio with us. He's famous for buildings with a very specific look about them. We're going to talk about his philosophy about design. Uh, He's going to address a little bit about the criticism that surrounded his work. And how he's only two degrees of separation from Jay-Z. We're so excited to have you here. Thank, Thank you again you so for much. joining Thank us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted. And it's frigid and you left your office for us, so we are very grateful. And I'm with two very nice people. What, how can I complain? Well, it's thanks. fantastic. It's very kind of you. <laughs> very generous. No, no, it's, it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, so we were just thinking a lot about your work and your practice, and we were curious, how old were you when you knew that you were going to be an architect? Yeah, I still don't know. <laughs> no, yeah. I really, no, I didn't start in architecture. You know, I had a career as a professional musician. Mm-hmm. I was a virtuoso uh, when I won the America Israel Prize for Music together with Itzhak Perelman, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, and I think I was the only one, according to Isaac Stern, who was the head of the jury, who did not become famous in music. But, you know, music took me through other things. Then I, you know, I was an immigrant to New York. I went to the Bronx High School of Science, got interested in math, mathematics mm-hmm. and draw you know i always draw all my life uh and then at the end of that that high school somebody said what are you gonna do what school are you applying i said i have no idea what school i'm applying to so my, my, my sister you better apply you've got only one week i said what are the free schools because my parents are you know factory workers I said what are the free schools in new york city college cooper union brooklyn i said okay i'll probably cooper union i went for the interview they said like why do you want to be an architect with your background I thought, well, it combines my interests. I love music. I love mathematics. I thought that's architecture. And I love drawing. And how lucky for me. Yeah. That I mean, you weren't wrong. No, I was, I was so lucky that I became an architect because it wasn't some sort of vocation, dreaming about being an architect building. Not, not at all. Just a kind of a path that I took that took me. And as you know, my first building, I never designed a building before uh, the Jewish Museum in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, it was my 40s. <laughs> It's not the normal route because I never worked for architects. Right. You know, I tried it here and there, but you know, took another uh, took another path. When did you stop? I didn't know about you being a musician. When did, when did you stop being uh, serious I about that? I probably stopped at around the age of seventeen, eighteen. Uh, but as my wife always points out to me, I, 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 it's true that I used to earn more money per hour when I was fifteen years old because as a virtuoso performer, you get. Very highly remunerated. Anyway, yeah. I don't regret uh, it because I continue music and architecture. You know, some sure. people think I've given up an instrument, but I've just changed it for another. Right. And you do speak very lyrically about architecture and about your work, so it makes sense. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about Lower Manhattan. There's a lot there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we'll try to keep it relatively oh, brief. Yes. Um, you moved your office downtown in 2003 from yeah. Berlin to New York. That's right. Um, and obviously master planned the World Trade Center site. What is your relationship now like with Lower Manhattan now that you're working there and it's, you know, years after kind of development, which well, is very much ongoing, you know, has it's been. ongoing and, you know, one is involved, but you know, I walk, I see the site from my bedroom window. Mm-hmm. I see it from our studio on Rector street. I, I walk by the site whenever I'm in New York, which is often, uh, the site is really part of what I believe in. And, uh, you know, a master plan is difficult to describe to people, but a master plan is the guiding orchestration. It's the, it's a composition of 
social spaces, of physical spaces, of activities, of memories, uh, of, of, of dreams of the future. And, you know, to me, it's miraculous that in, you know, it's, it's, people are always impatient. They think it's, you know, it takes too long. But when you see it now, and I saw it in the terrible time and there was just that, that void and, and the tragedy of death. And when you see it now with its memorial, with its museum, with its skyscrapers, with its social public space, which is, which is what really I fought for because, mm-hmm. you know, 16 acres, but it's eight acres of space for people, for New Yorkers, for others. So when I, when I go by it, I'd say, wow, it's so amazing that it has happened. And it's, you know, it's getting finished. You know, you can see the you know beautiful station. You can see tower number two will will get done. Mm-hmm. We're almost there. Yeah, it, it must be so incredibly rewarding to work on something for what has it been like thirteen? Yeah, years? more. Yeah, yeah fifteen. Yeah, so, yeah. It, it's look. It, it's not like building a building, or, you know, or designing a chair. You, you, you know, you do that. You build it. It's there. A master plan is designing a neighborhood, mm. and that's how I approached it. I didn't just say to myself, well, it's about some tall buildings, let's, let's give them a nice shape. It was, how do you create a neighborhood which is deeply connected? It's not just these 16 acres, it's connected to Chinatown, to Wall Street, to Tribeca, to Barry Park City. It's a central neighborhood. And now it's, look, 12 years later, 13, 14, how many years? A long time. 100,000 people have moved to Long Manhattan since I started working. Mm. You know, there was nothing. I remember walking in 2002, uh, 2001, around that area, and the offices were just empty. There was nobody on the streets. It, people said this will never come back to life again. This is, people moved into New Jersey. They, they left America. They, they were fearful. And when I see now schools, children, families, mm-hmm. the huge density of hotels, public buildings, private buildings, skyscrapers. It's just a renaissance of New York. And it's now the epicenter. I mean, for the next 30 years, this is really the place to be. And I'll tell you why. Early on, I discussed with with many people, including the developers, they wanted very large floor plates for for buildings. And Mm. I said, no, keep them small because that gives more space, permeability to the site. Not a, we we need trading floors. I said, don't worry, by the time the buildings are finished, technology will have changed. And who has moved to, to, to Ground Zero? It's not Wall Street. It's creative companies. It's right. media companies. And that's really, you know, starting with Condé Nast, Time, all these companies. It's a whole different idea of Lower Manhattan. Yeah. It's no longer this idea of, you know, Wall Street at night, empty streets, just people working during the day. It's a vital, incredibly interesting, fascinating, the oldest neighborhood in New York. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in New York, and I will say fear kind of lingered in the void after 9-11. Yeah, I think like that space being empty and being kind of what it was after that tragedy, I think a master plan really needed to create a space for people to recover in and totally. to feel like it was their city again, and they could kind of re-embrace the There's space. still people. I, I just met uh, an older gentleman, very well-educated, who lives somewhere in New York, said, so how is it going at Ground Zero? I said, you haven't been? He said, no, I'm still scared to go. I don't want, I, I said, you haven't been? He said, get on the next subway or take your car, go, you know. But it's it's true. I, th- I think that haunting moment, that terror that had stuck in so many people's minds. But when you go there, you can breathe fresh air. You you, you have the memory, but you also have that. We don't know how fresh it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is New York City still. It is New York City. And you have that vitality of the streets. And that's what I concentrate yeah. on. You know, uh, I always thought this. 
if my parents were alive, they're not. My father worked, you know, right there. He was a printer mm -hmm. on uh, Broad Street, Stone Street. Uh, you know, I said, my parents would never be in those buildings. They'd never be working for, you know, Condé Nast. They were working people of New York. Where would they be? They'd be on the streets, in the subways, in the trains, you know, running, trying to support their families. I said, that's what I'm going to concentrate on. That's my job. Of course, the buildings have to be beautiful, well-planned. That's That goes without saying, and they are. But it's really that public realm that was the key to, to the plan. Mm. And if you look at all the other uh, entries, really, 90% of them, just mega structures in the center of the site, big, big statements about big buildings. Mm -hmm. And I did the opposite. I said, you know, let's not build mega buildings. Let's build actually... The Freedom Tower, the 1776 symbolic tower. But then let's break up the density to five towers so that the buildings are lower, in fact. And it's good when they are lower, first of all, for safety. But second of all, and more importantly, they create better streets. You know, huge buildings don't create great streets. You got wind tunnels. You can... So, uh, and also by dividing the density, 10 million square feet of office space, to discrete buildings, it's a phasing plan. Nobody has money to build the whole thing at once. Right. It depends. As much on as they may want. As much as people <laughs> thought, why not? Yeah. Why don't they yeah. build the biggest tower in the world, or the kissing towers in the world, or whatever it was that was proposed? So that also made the plan very practical because money isn't you know available so quickly. Yeah. How often do you go down to the site to the reflecting every, pools? Well, um, I think every day. I mean, day. you see them. You I'm wake up day, to the view. Every day, every day, uh, twice, twice a day. I see. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, from my house, I see it. Yeah. So I see it all the time. Yeah. So, shifting gears a bit, and you mentioned that your first major commission was the Jewish Museum in Berlin, um, which obviously really put you on the map in a huge way. Um, but I've noticed that the firm has been doing a lot of temporary architecture. Recently as well, you worked on the uh, Vanka Pavilion at the right. Milan Expo. How does temporary architecture fit into your broader body of work and just your thinking about design in general? You know, I do. I do. You know, I did a, a project in Milan called Future Flowers, which is mm. a kind of installation work. I did. Can you describe it? Uh, what it looked it, like? It was in the courtyard of the great Filaretta building, the great Renaissance mm -hmm. architect, uh, what is now the University of Milan, and in one of these large courtyards of the former hospital, I created Future Flowers, a work based on my drawing, based on millions of lines, all in red, which intersect and create a kind of a field, both visual and kinetic, that is on one hand very abstract, but also very naturalistic. Well, it's my vision of future, future <laughs> flowers. Uh, and it was extended by the university uh, throughout the uh, Expo of Milan time, and, and they want to make it even permanent. So, and I want to sculptures. I worked, you know, I just recently built in Como, the Lake of Como, mm. which is one of the beautiful lakes in the world, uh, a, a sculpture dedicated to Alessandro Volta, the inventor of the battery, Volt, who came from Como, who was in charge of the lake. There was a disused key that we kind of restructured and then put a kind of emblem of of living electricity. It's it's a sculpture, stainless steel, reflective. Again, it was very controversial. People always say, what? On our beautiful lake, there's going to be this big sculpture, mm -hmm. but it has attracted you know thousands and thousands of people. And it's really shown that it's a beautiful place, not just to be on the shore, but to be in that lake and, and have a different look around the lake. So anyway, I'm, I'm lucky that you know art, sculpture, 
uh, installation work. I work with Marina Abramovich mm -hmm. on the counting rice. Uh, you know, I, I created the kind of. She's been very ever present in uh, pop culture and in, in uh, yeah. the culture in general. She oh, worked yeah. with Jay Z. She's a, she's a cool person. I mean, she <laughs> she's Lady very, Gaga. You she's know? a very cool person. She's brilliant. What is she like? So what does Marina, she like to hang out with? She's a true artist. To talk to. She's a true artist. You know, true artists are not fakes. Hmm. You know, you have to. You know, you, you know somebody's fake when they are fake, and then you know they are <laughs> fake artists too. But real artists are, are just what you, you what you get is what you get. It's, mm -hmm. You know, whether it's she, whether it's Igor Levitt, the pianist, whether it's you know whoever you meet that that's real. Hmm. And so it was a lot of fun to work with her on on, on this project. Like you know, creating this kind of special mystical furniture for for Counting Rice. When did you find out? When did you figure out that you were a, con a source of controversy yourself you know, in your work? <laughs> well, before I became, a, before I built my first building, even when I was doing my drawings, you know, series mm. of drawings, uh, when I was teaching, I was ahead of a school of architecture, uh, they were, uh, and my students produced works that were different from the Cooper Union, from MIT, from ETH, from other schools. It was very controversial. Uh, what I did was, you know, I, because I, I when I was an educator decades and decades ago, I said, yeah, architecture is not interesting, you know, doing nine square problems and building walls and windows and looking at sites. It's interesting only because it's related to culture, it's related to literature, it's related to film, it's related to art, it's related to poetry, to music, to dance. Bring all those things, you know, for, to think about. That's what architecture is. That's what, class, that's what humanistic architecture is about. Do you think that that perspective that you took was the source of the controversy itself? Or do you think it, it was, was the work? No, no, absolutely. Because it also, you know, I have to say, I also did many drawings, mm -hmm. uh, some which are museum modern art, but they are not figurative drawings. They're not like pictures of fantasy buildings because I never really liked that idea. If you don't have a client, social situation, a, a, a political situation, it's useless to draw nice fantasy castles. So I drew something as kind of a structure of what I believe the city is. Or the, but uh, lucky for me, I was able to use those drawings when my first project, which I wanted a competition, the Jewish Museum happened. But uh, controversy, you know, that building was was you know was not to be built it was even the german government the berlin government mm. voted against building it they said you know we don't have money to build such a crazy thing mm. uh, and so for them they used money kind of as an excuse well do you it think? was uh, it, germany was just unified uh, money is always a, an excuse yeah uh but it was a political decision in the beginning we, we don't who wants to deal with this history? Who needs this history now? We have other problems. We just unify. But uh, my point was that precisely in the unified Germany, you needed even more to, to, to think about history, to think about crime, to think about what should never happen again, to think about a better world, a world of hope and not a world of darkness. So really, you know, my very first building, the Jewish Museum, I remember the big magazine, architecture magazine, Bauwelt, the mm -hmm. ma magazine, the entire issue was against me. All the famous historians, famous art critics, famous architecture critics. Were you a little flattered? I wasn't. No, I was very upset. <laughs> of I said, course. how can everybody? Be but it nasty? is a whole issue. But yeah, but dedicated how can it to you? How can? How, well, there was dedicated to the project. It was not right. dedicated to me. Well, yes, to yes, the project. Of and and everybody was against it. Even people I admired. Hmm. So I learned. Look, there's always going to be opinions. You have to do what you believe in. Right. And uh, you know, every building that I do, you know, even a small house. 
it's always I don't understand why it's controversial. I don't want it to be controversial. But then I think about all the works that just get accolades that that just pass by. I think of the history, and you know, it's 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 a danger to be too much in love with what's going on. <laughs> mm. So, you were, were you sort of surprised at first by how much backlash uh, your designs were getting? Yes. And you you said uh, you you knew you were controversial before you even well, designed the Well, I was controversial before I built anything yeah. because of what I was drawing uh, and was what I was teaching, but. Uh, I didn't, you know, when I designed everything, I, I thought I was just meeting the program, you know, meeting right. the program, the responsibility of an architect is you answer the program, you give a shape to the space, you're responsible, uh, you know, in terms of economics of the building, you can deliver the building, you're a professional. But uh, what surprised me many, very often, that it has very little to do with this. People have their preconceived ideas. And right. that's fine. That's the democracy. People have. And I mean, your your designs are sort of very unique and unusual. I feel like people have sort of a tend to have a knee-jerk reaction to things that are very oh, totally. different. Uh, is that, do you ever, do you feel that way? Sure. Look, I go to great art shows, you know, the underground art, you know, where people say like, what? This is art. Right, right. This is bullshit. This isn't that. Yeah. Right. And is then, this, this a building? This yeah. is a, but 10 years later, you see that stuff hanging in the Metropolitan. You see it in, in Berlin and the great, you know, architecture has a slower life than that because it takes longer. Architecture lived in. It's not like a, you know, painting or an installation piece that, it, it has to navigate in a, into a different reality. Yeah. But I think it's not different from an art. It's a civic art. It's, you know, it's, it, it makes... And if I think of the controversial buildings in the world, whether it's Corbusier, Mies van der Alvaralto, I mean, all these guys had gone through a very similar thing. And I think of the architects who never went through controversies, and I say, that's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Because that means they were taking the easy way out. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's certainly very difficult to look at your buildings and not associate them with a with a, a sculpture or a piece of art. Well, you know. that has been, by the way, always the classical. And Michelangelo has it in his uh, letters. He says that the rejection of architecture as sculpture is old. That it's not a contemporary argument like mm. against Frank Gehry. Oh, that's sculpture. I love Gehry's architecture. Uh, that was the already. A critique in the Renaissance. They say, ah, oh, that looks like a sculpture. It doesn't look like a building. So it's it's uh, hundreds and hundreds of yeah. years of this history. An age-old <laughs> age <old> discussion. <laughs> syndrome. And yet buildings, you know, I'm so lucky to be involved in so many interesting buildings, interesting clients, interesting countries, interesting programs. How lucky. Yeah. I think the best buildings kind of tow that line, really navigate well that line between sculpture on the street and a building you interact with, a building you go into for work, for fun, to see exactly. concerto, exactly. to see you know Fiona Apple play. I you're don't know right. where, whatever but look, you're doing. Architecture is changing. Yeah. You know, many people think it's not changing. It's just like it's always been lit for thousands of years, and it's gonna. Be, but it's changing because of media, technology, new materials, new minds. Mm -hmm. uh, look In at what how, ways exactly would you say that that's changing? Change is because desire is changing. People don't want to just go into the black or white box and turn their equipment on and we live in a virtual world. They want to live in an interesting world now in an interesting city that is interesting, has interesting, vibrant streets that's fun to walk and that's joyful, that, that affirms your uniqueness as, as an individual, uh, not just as a statistic and as some sort of mass study. Look, uh, the, the magnetic waves were just discovered, mm -hmm. and my son is an astrophysicist. Huge news. Yeah, my that's son is amazing. an astrophysicist. He called me before and said, oh my God, you won't believe this. And, you know, space-time, Einstein, physics, 
brain science, DNA. We're so advanced, but architecture changes slowly. You know, it's 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 more resistant to change, and that's the kind of enigma, because it's hard to build a building, even a small one. Uh, it, it's it's hard to change, but buildings are changing, and cities are changing. Don't be fooled that the box has a future. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but people do love their boxes. Of course, it seems to make a lot of sense. Of oh, course, yeah, it should look like this. Of course, <laughs> of course, it's easy to find with your hands, so it's easy to make. Right, but uh, as. Uh, Hamlet uh, says to Horatio, somebody says, there's more, my friend, in heaven and earth than is in our philosophies. Mm. And it's true. There's more in heaven and earth than that's in a, all the theories. Uh, that's a Hamlet deep cut also. Oh, that's yeah. That's not like a common passage. No, I love that line. That's your favorite, that's your favorite book. By book far. I, yeah. I must have read that book a thousand times. And I still find it an enigma. Mm. It's like the smile of Mona Lisa. You can't figure it out. It, it's, it's so complex. It's so interesting. Yeah. And it's it's saying something. It's on the verge of saying it. And you just are almost, but it's always eluding you. And it's a great work of art. Do you aim for that in your work? No, I never think of it, uh, about it as a piece of literature. But but no, not, not necessarily as literature, as, as legible text in that way, but just towing a line between being really easy to kind of comprehend and well, revealing it, itself slowly well, I, to someone. I tried to make it easy and utilitarian and fun to be in and, and, and adequate to this program. Sometimes people feel, well, it's this or that. But in time, things uh, work themselves out. Uh, Ground Zero Two was under, under great critic critique. You know, what the hell? All the space is going to be left open. There should be buildings in there. Mm -hmm. But I was confident, if you have an idea. The idea is social realm, social space, public streets, mm -hmm. good streets, beautiful views. Uh, connecting something difficult like the memory with something really fantastic and, and, and creating that balance on the streets between advertising what faces the memorial, what doesn't face the memorial, what is somber and what is beautiful and what is happy. That's true in every project. And you have to balance those things out, whatever the theme. The theme might not be as, as, as critical as, as a tragedy, but... Yeah. Was there ever a specific moment, either a pop culture moment or a moment just in your personal practice that you were like, maybe I've made it. Like, maybe I'm, I've established myself no, never. in the profession enough no, to, never. to not never be worried about No, never. You should never say, no, never. There has never been such a moment. It never yeah. will be. Because if you begin to be satisfied with what you're doing, then, then you, you're, you're not smart. <laughs> no, gotta, you've missed the point. You've missed the satisfied. point. You, you've yeah. got to go forward. And creativity is always an elusive impetus to doing work mm. because otherwise you would just sit back and do nothing. But you want to do something else. You, you, whatever the project, whatever you know, somebody tells you, build us an office building or build us a, you know, master plan for a big city or do give us a chair or something. Uh, wow, there's there's such an impetus in that. Yeah. Well, in terms of making it, we came across a tweet from your firm. Yeah. A building of yours, the I, the I Park Hyundai, was featured in the background of a Psy music video, Psy, the South Korean <laughs> yeah. pop star from Gangnam Style, yeah. has that, that massively famous, that was yes. like yeah. the most viewed YouTube video ever. <laughs> it was like 55 million views the song when it first will be out. playing in the background <laughs> when, this, when this goes yeah. to the internet. <laughs> so what was that like? I mean, that must have been a, kind of a surreal thing. Well, it's cool. 
cool. You know, yeah. Ridley Scott is doing a whole film on, on my project in Singapore using that as a kind of... Tell us everything. What do you yeah. know about that? Uh, well, I know that it's being filmed, right? At Reflections, <laughs> which is a, an entire, you know, it's six skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. It's, it's you know, the waterfront. And I'm doing another project called The Corals next door. But he chose it. And I, I don't know Ridley Scott, although I admire him. He chose it as for this, as a scenography for this... I don't know, futuristic tale that he's telling. That's great. So fantastic. Uh, look, uh, the ROM, Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, mm -hmm. was rebuilt for a TV series. There was a TV series running. And I said, that's my building. And they said, no, no, look at it. It's just a, it just looks like your building. Mm -hmm. It's inspired. But they didn't have the rights to film inside of the museum in Toronto. Okay. So, yeah, that's kind of fantastic. I mean, I, I'm not into advertising, but buildings which are iconic register themselves in different ways with different people and yeah. have a different impact. Do you find out that this stuff is happening uh, before or just when it when it happens? You, no, when it happens. Yeah. I never know. Right. Somebody, <laughs> side somebody side tweets. call you up. Yeah, and say, somebody hey. tweets. Listen to this. I, I saw, you know, you know right. on the site. You know? That's incredible. Yeah. That must feel so great. And also yeah, just be fun. You know? It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's, and buildings, as I said, belong to, you know, they don't belong to the architect. They don't belong to the client. They belong to the, even a private building is already on this on, on, on in the in the public view. Right. So it's it's the most public of arts. And I mm. always thought that's what makes it so difficult because, you know, if you're a writer, you can sit at home or in, a, in an attic or in a, on a corner of a street and write something. Or if you're a composer, you know, you can even compose something without it ever having been played. But mm. for architecture, you need that connectivity to get it done, to, to, to create the team and the investment and the power of creating something which seems so banal, like some walls and windows and doors, and yet it's probably the most strange art there is. Right. And then when it's over, you kind of just have to let it like let it go. You can never go back and no, absolutely. You know, no. revise your no, no, building. No. And you should not revise your buildings. You know, your buildings are part of the, 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 the moment that they are born. It's like a child. You can't revise a child. People try, though. <laughs> and it's usually a failure, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. because you can't, you know, someone is born with certain capacities and mm. that's the unique thing. And that's kind of the, the, the idea of God. It's, it's, that's what it is. And going back and rebranding and redoing is, is to me something strange. So a building, you know, I look at uh, great buildings and they are of their time. And that's why they are eternal somehow. You know, you walk by Seagram's. It's such an old building. The lighting systems that you look at, it's so old fashioned. And yet, wow, it's an eternal building. It's, it's, it's there from that time forever. So what are you working on now? What is the firm doing? What oh are my you God, I have on? to make a I see your crib sheet, so I'm like, I have some, okay. a full list. I have, I have a full, and these are, okay. First of all, I have a very exciting opening in Frankfurt, Germany, of a thing that I invented with the commission of the Frankfurt Opera called One Day in Life. It's May 21st and 22nd. It's a 24 hours program of music, my music. I mean, no, I didn't write the music, but my idea was to create a topography of the city where music is performed, where music has never been performed, like in the hospital room, mm. in the underground, in a bunker nobody has ever been to, in the subway station, in Oscar Schindler's house, which nobody knows is standing right there in the middle of the city, in the most obscure place in the stadium of Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. And I curated, I said, like, my, it was my music, contemporary and, and, and ancient music. They allowed me. They said, okay, go ahead, do it. And, Great. and it's going to be so much fun. So, so that's, that's, in that's, I, that's in May, one day in life. Then I have, okay, the opening of my uh, skyscraper in Warsaw, mm -hmm. uh, Zwota 44, which means 
the building is finally finished. It went through, you know, all sorts of things, but it has become iconic and it's, I love it because I love Poland. I'm Polish. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, you know, lived around the corner from where that building is standing. Wow. It was old That's Jewish uh, center. Yeah. And it's right across the Stalin palace that I remember as a child, which was built to oppress the Polish people. Mm. Piece of propaganda, horrible. So it's right. And it's a residential building, the tallest tower in Europe. 65 stories. It's a triumphant return for you. Uh, it's a fantastic. <laughs> that's really. And I was so happy. I was staying in the Intercontinental Hotel, mm-hmm. and on their keychain was my building. So wow. Like in a silhouette in on the, the keychain. Yeah, it's just on, just in the center. Uh, this inter- so it, I said it's strange. The Intercontinental they didn't put its own building. It's a new building. It's, you know, it's a box tower. Nice. Right. And it puts water. So I love that. I, so that's that's opening. Um, I am opening a small but very interesting building in Durham, Durham, England. Mm-hmm. A small building for education. It's, it's astrophysics and uh, particle physics. Small building for scholars who are studying on the micro and macro level right. what the universe is. When you very, say small, how small is the building? How many stories? I think it's like 6,000 square meters. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not... So, you know, it's not modest, tiny. It's okay. <laughs> You're being very okay, generous. Okay, okay. Then I <laughs> have, yeah. uh, in Singapore, my second large plot is opening next to Reflections called Corals, which is very, very high-density development. Right. Very, very high-density development right on the old docks of the waterfront. It's okay. it's a beautiful project. And I know that you worked on a chair with Moroso. Yes, I did. Can I just opened. About, yeah. Yes, we just opened. Had that? an opening a couple of days ago. Because chair, chair design and industrial design, it's a bit of a different world. It is. Not entirely. Not entirely. But, but there are some considerations that you have to take that you well, don't necessarily make for a skyscraper. Well, I get involved. You know, we have a studio in Milano and then you discover the beauty of furniture and all these fantastic companies that have such talent. You know, made in Italy is not just a word. And... Uh, I, I met Moroso through Marina Abramovich, and then we said, like, why don't you design for us, you know, airport seating, you know, beautiful sofa. And it was so, so cool to work with, with you know, I, I hope you get a, ch- a chance to see the Moroso show. Yeah, we'd love that. You are a busy man. Well, I'm lucky. <laughs> look, I cannot be bored. Lots to look forward to. That's Thank very you. exciting. Thank you. It sounds really exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. I'm so, so lucky. We want to do a quick lightning round oh, yeah. with you. I and I actually, I'll just I turn this own, for you. My own, no, I want to I take it out so that people can hear the crinkling of paper <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> Very old school yeah. of you. Um, so these are the, that was all the other stuff. These are the serious questions. Okay. Now, I'm all for serious questions. Where'd you get your glasses? We love, we love the glasses. This glass, this pair of glasses, these are, I believe, meekly glasses in Paris. And for listeners who can't see us, obviously, Daniel wears very distinctive rectangular glasses that we are obsessed with and want to know exactly where he got Thank them. Thank you. They are, you know, he's, I don't think he does glasses anywhere, but he's a very good designer. I've always loved to... Loved and to, all of your glasses are... No, I have Japanese work? glasses. I, I, you know, I have so many glasses because I don't want people to identify me with, with a pair of glasses. Right. So I always change them. You're not Corbusier. <laughs> no. No, no I don't want to be with Corbusier. I don't want to be Philip Johnson. No. I want to have different glasses. All right. That's fair. <laughs> I used to go... I used to cover... Um, 
New York City Preservation Commission hearings, and I would go and I could always tell who the architect was and the group by the glasses. <laughs> whoever, whoever the thickest glasses, you can tell who the main developer is. Who the by you know, thickness? Yeah, thickness of glasses. Yeah, to have, yeah. The, yeah. The developers would sometimes have glasses often without the frames, with the little. You know, just the oh, glasses. that's interesting. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah, I'm actually. <laughs> I feel kind of left it. out because I'm not wearing glasses. I just you gotta get this. it for yeah. now. They have glasses just for fashion. I know, just for fashion. Just for you know. Yeah. Well, maybe of, I'll do that. Maybe next yeah, time you see me, I'll be wearing a pair. You look good. You would look good in Thank beautiful you. pair of glasses. You. you heard it here first. <laughs> Daniel Lewiskin told me I'd look good in glasses. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. Well, thank you. Um, so we were wondering uh, if you could critique this room that we're sitting in. If you, what, what, are, does, is this an inspiring room at all? Yes. Yeah? I like it. It's kind of sloppy. Yeah. You could say sure. slov- <laughs> You can say even almost slovenly, but it needs a little more help. Not to make it more elegant, to give it a sort of an edge. Hmm. Because right now it's not curated enough. It's like things are just staying around the wall. I would just put some stuff projecting out of the walls so it's more interesting spatially, kind of with a kind of empty space that is available with found objects, with necessary objects. Yeah, I, I yeah. We'll see, what, right. we'll see what we can do. Sad and I did design this room and take it this so <laughs> okay. We don't take okay. it first. Okay. <laughs> I'd get rid uh, of the yeah. color gray on the wall, by the way. Okay, yeah, that, Definitely. that seems fair. I, I like the wood. I, I like the wood. I painted, I like the wood you know, too. I just produced a series of colors for Italian company. They asked me to look at that. Yeah. Perfect. They said the Oikos. They said the big color company. They said, like, what is your palette of colors? Great. These are not all the colors. I, I dislike some colors intensely. Yeah. Like so, which which ones? Which ones do you oh passionate? Oh my god, they, they, there's certain, have a passionate distaste they, for. There are there are certain blues I don't like. There's certain browns I don't like. Well, There's certain reds I don't like. Yeah. Uh, yellows that are green I don't like. No. I'm so glad I'm not wearing any, <laughs> any reds. I mean, no, you'd be wearing the right red. But we don't know. We don't know about our blues. The blues I've got some blues. I, I like your blues. Oh, thank that, you. That's thank in you. my palette. All right. Anyway, so I, I would recommend like I have exactly the right color for this wall. Okay. Well, we hope all the studio p- folks are listening yeah. in on this. Oh, well, we're, yellow. We're going to have a. We're actually having a competition for this wall. So if you could submit, I'm um, submitting. We'll, we'll consider you. I'm yeah. definitely submitting. I, uh, and it would be an honor. This watch. Sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, if you could build in any material, regardless of structural viability, so like and like literally anything. What what are some what are some things you would lo- you would like to see something made out of? I'd like to have something made out of. The poetic consciousness oh. of people. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> everybody has poetic. My mind is blown. If you can Tell harness the poetic consciousness of every person, no matter who they are, how old they are, where they live. Wow, what a world! Think what's what's in people's minds. Amazing. Slightly frightening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but exciting. People have amazing ideas, and then they might walk by and they have some splinter of consciousness mm. that is so original that it's not imitating anything that it's kind of their experience yeah that'd be beautiful yeah i was thinking like bubbles but your, yours, <laughs> yours, is, yours is a lot better no, bubbles not no no um so we talked a little bit about hamlet your favorite book we were wondering uh how do you organize your books at home you know they're not organized i gotta tell you no uh, this is what i have i have a lot of books at home that i've read a thousand times i've got a lot of books that are just i read once and i don't care about they create sure. I think we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. I've got a lot of books, some books, not a lot, that I ha- have to have, but I know I will never read them. But I have to have them, but I know I'll never get there to read them. So the library is a sort of construct of the mind, and it's not organized by letters or by topics. It was organized by some strange 
magnetism of books to each other. So I have like very inconsistent. I sometimes call, you know, my secretary and say, can you go to the fifth shelf? Second from the bottom, there is a book which is light blue in color. So you know. I you know, know what where they the are, are. But they have no system. They're just like, just, you know, they're just kind of blue. You know, yeah, pixels. Right. But they're, they're in the right order, though. You know that that's they're the order in a, they're supposed well, to be. Once you, uh, once you have put a book on a shelf, you will always remember where it is. Even if you have put a cookbook next to James Joyce's Fenegan's Wake, and next to that you put, you know, old, you know an old uh, saga from Persia, you know where those books are. Right. Wow, that is that is very interesting. <laughs> so you're not organizing your books by color. Like no, the, definitely not. I know. Is the vogue I've, right I'm now? I'm really offended by people in advertisement of furniture or homes. They put like we all agree. white books, all yeah. white books, and I say, what kind of readers are these people? <laughs> Everything has to just color matching books. You know, books are beautiful as objects, and I love books as objects. Have you ever seen? Uh, we've come across this a couple of times, just having looked at so many photos of like decor and interior design. People who turn the books around and put them in spines back so that everything is white. I know. Oh, I, 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 I arrest those people. Yeah. That's, I cannot abide <laughs> by that. I cannot abide yeah. by that. That's just too ugly. Uh, yeah. And clearly you're never going to read any of those books again. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. It's like taking the covers of the books and right. creating a wallpaper. And I've seen that done with 19th oh, yeah, century yeah. books. I've seen that that's in like, some uh, new condo buildings. Yeah, it's criminal. In the, in the, in the lobbies. It's criminal. Yeah. yeah. Desecra but, that's desecration of yeah, books. Yeah, but the book, just straight the book up. will come yeah. back. I... Uh, I had a feeling that you could tell a lot by a person by how they organize their books, and I think I think I'm more sure of that now than I thought. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's the case. Um, if would you rather live uh, on the beach or in a forest? Definitely not on the beach. Yeah, nice. Definitely not on the beach. I, you know, well, that's, I not, to... that's not a vote for the forest either. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, the forest brings too many dramatic ideas of Brothers Grimm, you know, this right. forest well. with evil people in the forest. And or just going and retreating and isolating Retreating yourself. and yeah. you know, this kind of forest journey, which is, which is a kind of uh, mythology of, the kind of dramatic mythology has a lot of it. But the idea of forest itself is innocent because, you know, forest is... Uh, only there in relation to a clearing in the forest where you find that you suddenly are out of the forest and you see the forest. Otherwise, you're just lost. Right. So, yeah. I And the beach, no. Beach, beach has too many, you know. Sandy. It's sandy. It's got all sorts of things. <laughs> that's, my, that's my thing. It's sandy. It's got a lot of stuff. It is a sandy place. <laughs> I think for some people, that's the point. But... I agree. I would not choose by the beach. No. Because Shakespeare wouldn't choose it either. I think like that's as, a good reason not yeah, to like us, go with it. Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, shore so so do our minutes hasted to the end. Each changing place with one that goes before. In sequent toil, all forwards do contend. I mean, it's an image of time, hmm. uh, time and death. See, I, I don't like watching the waves on the beach. Because it evokes time and death for you. Yeah, it does. Hmm. Huh. Thanks yeah. to the one and only great mind that right. has ever lived. Yeah. I think that's thanks, a thanks a lot, Shakespeare. You, <laughs> you ruined, ruined the beach. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love beaches. The kids love beaches. My, yeah. my family yeah. loves beaches. I'm the odd person. They're good in short, short bursts. Yeah, a little, little bit of beach. Yeah, and exactly. Then go back away from the exactly. Beach. I prefer the mountains to the beach personally. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. Um, what is what is one thing that you wish you could change about uh, your home? My home. Yeah, where you live. I wish it had wings. That's fair. And I wouldn't have to get into airplanes. <laughs> and I could just, the, the house would just, it's a small apartment. 
it, it had wings. I just, if I have to go to China, I don't need to get on a, you know, United flight. I can just press a button and my whole house with the books, with my music, with my little, you know, original little Rembrandt etching that, that I love. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, come with me. Yeah. All the things. God, that would be like traveling with my clothing. Yeah. That would be cool. Maybe that one day cool. it'll happen. Yeah, let's let's try it. <laughs> Got to start working on that now. The prototyping on that well, we is going to take a while. We have already the drones, which are really very mobile. The yeah. next thing is to be able to remove the, the fixity of the house, in quotes, and be able to make it both intimate but also mobile because mm -hmm. we are all mobile. You know, the mobile technology is there. Uh, we want to be in two places at once. We don't want just in one place at once. <laughs> yeah. I think mobile, like mobile tiny homes are already a thing. Obviously, yeah, they don't fly. Sure. Yeah. But you can get them on wheels and you can, you can get, get them going. on wheels and then they trek through the forest. But, <laughs> but it would be great to just be able to sort of be anywhere you just wish to be, mm. but not to be in a hotel. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> that's the key. Yeah, that's the key part of that. I think so. How, how much of the year are you, are you traveling? Probably... Conservatively, I would say half. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're like yeah. a road comic. And do you love it, or do you have a conflicted relationship no, with that? No, I, I tell you, I travel with my wife, Nina, who's my partner, and we have so much fun. First of all, she can't use her technology. She's not, a, you know, no telephones. So it's kind of a cathedral. It, there, there's silence. There's, uh, there's that, that moment of being together. There's beauty in flight. I... I I mean, how fantastic that we can go far distances and, and still people complain that the flight is late, that flight right. was not on time. How stupid are they? We're so lucky. To, to Even if you have three-hour delay at Kennedy and still you can go to you know Berlin in seven hours. Wow. This yeah. is a fantastic era. Yeah. That's very, that is a very enlightened way to think about a three-hour delay at Kennedy. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> not that long ago. It would have taken uh, a year. A year. Right. Whatever. Yeah. And you probably would yeah. die. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, you know, the, the famous Jesuit, uh, Ritchie, who was the first Jesuit to go to China, introducing, you know, Christianity, mm -hmm. tried to, so, uh, wrote a letter to his parents, how are you? Got a letter seven years later that they're not there anymore. They died. That's how long it was a letter to deliver a letter from China to, you know, I don't know, somewhere in Italy. Yeah. yeah. As that could help us feel better also about not responding to emails that quickly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Keep it all in perspective. Yeah, don't, you don't have to respond yeah. to emails. <laughs> all um, right. I actually had one. Yeah, that's, that's okay. it for the lightning round for me. Well, I yeah, had we're one still that stuck I wanted to We're still in the lightning round. Don't do yeah, the lightning I mean, round sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned Mies. So of... Between you know Mies and Philip Johnson, whose work, whose body of work speaks to you more? For for sure, Mies van der Rohe. How can you even compare? Uh, I figured you might say that <laughs> Mies van der Rohe was a mystic. He had on his desk nothing but the book of Thomas Aquinas. He didn't mean drawings on his desk. He was a mystic, and funny how mysticism, when it's banalized, turns to black buildings made out of steel and glass. But his buildings do have a spiritual significance, uh, whether they are an office building or the same exact building that he built in Toronto, that he built in, in a, you know, they're, they're icons of mysticism. So they don't look to me like buildings by other architects that mm. try to use this as a style. So for sure, uh, it's not a style. This is not a style. It's the real thing. Well, 
That's a pretty definitive answer. Yeah, we got, we got it. <laughs> well, you know when you're in those buildings because yeah. there is an aura and you're haunted uh, by the ghosts that are alive. It's not just something out of the past. That's, Who, that's, who's? You mean the ghosts of, of that whole era of Germany, the Weimar Republic? Going. Yeah. I mean, where did those black things come from? Where did those details come from? They came from 1920s mm. when he proposed his building on Frederikstrasse, the, the, of the first old glass building. Right. I mean, that was the era of, you know, the cabaret, the Marlena Dietrich, era of Otto Dix, era of Walter Benjamin, era of great turmoil in politics, arts, that created modernism in many ways, together with the Russian counterparts uh, back there towards the east and of course with americans dos pasos right. and all the great american artists and writers great well that's it for us thank you so much for joining thank us for this inviting really, really fun. it's been so much yeah, fun great. to be with you guys yeah. thanks, thanks so much for inviting me yeah, thanks for coming